1: The Navy on this ship completely erased the whiteboard and started from scratch. They made a brand new ship from stem to stern, reactor plants new, flight deck design, dual band radar, the weapons elevators, supply elevators, the crew comforts, the kitchens, everything. Not revolutionary, it's evolutionary. And brand new design that's gonna be game changing. hate that cliche for the Navy, but it's amazing the way it's designed. Stand by.
2: Like somebody
0: got hit the world, Hello and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. I'm your host, Vincent Aiello, and this week we are in between numbered episodes once again. So like last week, we have a guest co-host to join us, and this time, instead of Ken Katz, it's Matt Arney. How you doing there, Flounder? I'm great. How you
2: doing there, Jello? Oh, uh, not too bad, all things considered. What's new in your world? Well, first of all, I tell you, for the people who aren't seeing you, you look quite distinguished nowadays. I like what you got going on there.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah. I don't know if you've been keeping up with the show, if we've talked lately, but I'm in a little bit of a kerfluffle with the FAA. So I figure if I'm not flying, I'm going to grow a beard, but I don't know how people do it. It's getting really itchy.
2: Yeah. Well, I went back and forth on that in my sabbatical. And so I've settled on this kind of close shaven one because I just frankly don't want to shave anymore every day like I used to. So It gets old, but. Gosh, I mean,
0: uh, we'll get to it in a second, but last week we had Ken talking with the Stratolaunch launch guys about the Rock, and that was a really cool big airplane. They talked about building it and flying it. And this week, man, I tell you, as you and I are recording this, I still don't know what to call this episode because you two talk about the F-14, flight school, surface warfare officers, and nukes, Top Gun Maverick. Oh, by the way, the USS Gerald R. Ford, (laughs) PLM, leadership. I mean, you and Yank were really all over the place.
2: Yeah, yeah, we were kinda of all over the place, you know. My whole intent with Yank was twofold. One, he had that experience as being commanding officer on Ford, which was really great to understand from his perspective how that Ford class carriers is shifting, the way we're looking at some aspects of naval aviation in the future. And then the other one is he's always just been a big personality and great storyteller. And I knew that it would be an engaging episode and I knew getting from Massachusetts to Ford would be you know a path that I would have to navigate in the interview but it was good I like it well it'll
0: be a lot of fun for those who are waiting you just have to wait a couple more minutes while we talk about uh, not really any announcements but we'll just talk about a current event and then I've got two listener questions and we'll get to the interview but first off yeah I guess we've done a little update Uh, anything else new with you that we need to know about?
2: Well, I mean, it's been a little while since I was able to make some time to do this, and I really enjoy getting into these episodes and helping out. And so I look forward to to doing some more. But, you know, it's been about a year I've been working in the technology industry and and I just enjoy the podcasting and, and great to see you at Hook really a few weeks ago, even though it seems a little while ago. And took my kids there for the first time, and they had a blast. And they said, beside the simulators and those kinds of things, the best thing was just meeting all my friends and how fun my friends are. Like, yep, they are a good group of people, so...
0: For sure. I always find it funny that in a room full of so many type A personalities and with alcohol, I've never ever seen a fight at Hook, but I see a lot of big hugs. (laughs) So
2: That's right. Very true. Yeah.
0: Isn't that funny? But it's a good group. I remember uh, meeting your wife and kids and uh, yeah, they look like they're having a good time. So
2: collecting swag and, and having a good time. and
0: Oh yeah. It's like trick or treating.
2: Yeah. Well, Like
0: I said, I don't really have too many announcements. I guess I just want to acknowledge, as you and I are recording this in relatively early October, that there is a bit of a fight going on over in the Middle East with uh, Hamas and Israel. And man, that's just, it's really unfortunate to see. I I don't follow current events enough to know if something led up to it. It seems to me like the one side started firing rockets at the other. But man, it's just a real bummer because I've started seeing... Some of the headlines coming out of there of kidnappings and the attacks on both sides. And a lot of people are losing their lives and a lot of damage.
2: Yeah, that's right. There'll be different interpretations and kind of allegiances and whatever conversation you have about this situation. You know, current events. I agree. I I wasn't aware of something at the moment that lit it off. But we all know that that's like a long history of issues. And interestingly, and apropos for the episode, it is the Ford carrier strike group that is on its way there to try to help mediate the situation. And I think you and I both know it could be very easy for us to get involved in that situation. And that's just something that it doesn't have a good end.
0: No, it's a slippery slope. But man, it's been such a tinderbox for so long. I don't know what the right solution to this is. And maybe there is no solution. Maybe this is, as Andy Stanley likes to say, there are problems to solve and tensions to manage. I wonder if this is just one of those tensions to manage. It'll just never be solved, but sure uh, would be good if there could be because it's affecting a lot of people.
2: Yeah, I think maybe the most achievable way of helping to resolve this is getting a time machine and we can go back in time and undo some decisions uh, from the past. But being that that's not going to happen anytime soon, it opens up a whole case of ethical issues. I think we just have to deal with the situation as it is. And yeah.
0: And depending if you did have such a machine, how far back you wanted to go, those who believe in the Bible will tell you this is thousands of years old. So uh, ever since the chosen people came out of Egypt, but at any rate. All right, well, let's move on to uh, some listener questions. Why don't we? The first one is an email from Joey who says, is it harder for a wingman to maintain close formation when in afterburner? In military power, I would imagine it's easy to keep formation as you've got the entire throttle range to use, similar to following another car. However, in afterburner, I understand you may only have up to five afterburner settings. Say lead is in max burner and your aircraft engine isn't tuned quite as finely, Would you struggle to keep formation as you've got limited throttle options? And then finally, I understand this is only a problem during fancy formation takeoffs and flyovers and has no tactical relevance. Well, to your last point there, Joey, I wouldn't say that's entirely true. It's more exacerbated in close formation, but if you're doing certain maneuvers where you might be a little bit separated from each other and you're trying to keep up, if the flight lead maybe went in the full afterburner before you did and you are what we'd call sucked when you're a little bit behind the usual position you should be in, then it's very difficult to make that up, as you allude, without maybe descending and using a little bit of your potential energy to turn it into kinetic. Otherwise, Flounder, I'm going to bring you in on this real quick. Didn't the F-14 have zones of afterburner? Because the F-18 does not. But Joey asks about five zones. Is that F-14 thing?
2: Yeah, I mean, that was a F-14A thing, selecting zone five, all that kind of stuff. And I was GE 110s with the B uh, most of my career with a little bit of A and D time. And I just remember from, you know, to this point with the, like we would do section takeoffs sometimes. And so the lead pilots always briefing that, hey, you know, when we go throttles up and go to max, I'm going to crack it back a little bit. And that gives the wingman that extra little bit of range. And then there's that radio comms. If for some reason there's a situation where even wingman's max is not getting what he needs, then he can communicate something.
0: Give me a couple is uh, what we used to always say. And that was kind of the clue to, hey, pull back a little bit to allow me to catch up. But yeah, very good. Gosh, I should have just handed this to you in the first place. Uh, Exactly right. When we do a section go, you have hand signals or radio signals. And uh, as the lead, I would touch the afterburner stops and then just crack it back, maybe a half inch or so. And as long as the wingman was maneuvering with me and didn't get, again, sucked where it's harder to catch up, it's pretty easy to keep up as long as I... Just don't go full to the stop. But it's not necessarily any different, I would submit, Joey, whether I do that on a military power takeoff or an afterburner takeoff. Because at military, you still have afterburner, but as soon as the afterburner lights, you get more than you need. And so it's really difficult to go in and out of afterburner when the guy is all the way to the mill stops. So even if we're doing something in mill, I'll pull it back just a little bit. That way you don't have to go into afterburner. And I do remember... One of my early flights, formation flying at VMFAT 101 when I was a flight student, we were doing some close maneuvering like Joey's talking about. And one of the things to do was to put out the speed brakes. And because of the speed brake on the Hornet, at least to the Legacy Hornet, is up on the top, it ends up creating this big pitch moment. And I just remember getting into pilot-induced oscillations. I was all over the place, and the instructor's looking over his shoulder at me with these wide eyes. And so it's a skill you learn, and there's ways to communicate it. And as a flight lead, to be a good flight lead, you don't just go full to the stops. You give them a little bit and uh, make it known that they can either use the inside of the turn if you're turning or ask you to pull it back a little bit. So anything else to add on that?
2: Well, just, you mentioned something that there was a, something quite monumental that happened what a week or so ago, and, and you were VimFat 101, and we sunned down VimFat 101, didn't we?
0: We did indeed. We had a whole episode on it, and I was there that day. I guess that, that could have been an announcement, but yeah, it was really great, and uh, they are in the history books, or at least uh, hibernating, or whatever you want to call it.
2: Like many things you and I have dealt with going into you <laughs> No kidding.
0: Book. No kidding. All right, second and final listener question is an email from Anders Howard, and he's in Dallas. He says, I just listened to the episode about VMFAT 101 closing. My question comes from a question another listener asked, which was, do bugs get into the cockpit? I was wondering if, in a rare circumstance, a bug got into the cockpit and you pulled a high number of Gs, would it also feel those Gs If so, would it live through that experience? Anders, you're exceeding both my entomology and physics understanding here. I think so, but I don't know. Flounder, let's go back to the beginning. I answered him saying, I don't really remember ever having a fly or a bee or anything bugging me in the cockpit. No pun intended. Did you ever have anything like that that comes to mind?
2: Yeah, I mean, because obviously, you know, you get the canopy open and, you know, something can get in there before you shut the canopy and then they're going for a ride with you. And I don't know if it's one of those things where your brain ends up making it up that, yeah, I remember there being a fly in there or something like that. But I don't remember it. Anything getting squashed against the, it would probably go against the floorboard or something like that. But what other animals have been in the cockpit, I don't know if you've seen various cruise videos of like the cruise beta fish. There's, I think the puking dogs at 143 took a beta fish on deployment with them and they would take it flying with them. And there's videos of them doing acrobatics and stuff with this beta fish in like a, a bag, and it survived multiple catch shots, multiple arrested landings, and all kinds of jo antics, and lived a interesting life as a deployed beta fish shell.
0: So, oh my goodness! Yeah. <laughs> You know, you know, beta, just to go on a tangent, beta are such hardy fish. And we once got a goldfish at the fair. I bet you and your boys have done this too. And we took it home and the thing was dead in like two days. But you can have no oxygenation in the beta's water. Forget to feed it for a couple of days. It lives forever. So in the Aiello household, I'm almost ashamed to admit this, but it's it's one of our little slurs we give someone. Oh, you're a goldfish. Like you're frail. You die easily. Like, you know, so-and-so who's tough. Like, oh, he's a beta, you know? that's good i don't know but help me out i mean is a g a g if a fly lands on my dash and then i roll and pull seven g's is that fly experiencing seven g's i mean i think so but maybe some physicists so
2: yeah i mean it's going to experience it and the the interesting thing i always felt is if the fly is in midair you know and you pull the g's is it going to slam against because it's now being displaced as the cockpit's rising up to meet it. And so it's all kinds of, too bad we don't have access to a Hornet anymore.
0: Oh, I know, huh? We just go out and give it a try. Yeah, I would think so, because it's the same thing you guys are about to talk about it in this interview, which is if you look out to the left and the pilot abruptly rolls the jet to the right, you know, your head's in that little piece of airspace. It's not necessarily moving the whole thing, including your head. You're going to hit the canopy. So I bet if it was flying and you all of a sudden pull a bunch, I bet you're going to smack it. and It's probably not going to enjoy that too much. So. Anyway. All right. Well, enough of us wondering about uh, G's and flies and everything else. Speaking of the interview, let's get to it. I've already previewed a little bit of it, of the different things you and Yank talk about. But uh, what made you want to pursue this one in the first place, Planner?
2: Yeah. So, you know, Yank retired recently out of that CEO job in the Ford. And one of the things that he did, I was uh, still in, I was at Whidbey Allen at the time. And and I saw a lot of the strategic communication he was doing. And, you know, before his tour, I admit, I also had that attitude of, oh my God, Ford is just off the rails. How could we have done this? You know, all those kinds of things and that we see with a lot of acquisition programs. So seeing Yank communicate that and then being in like major command conferences together with them. And as I got into this side, helping out on Fighter Pilot Podcast and trying to do more future of air warfare, I thought, what a great guy to have on to kind of educate people on what it is about Ford that makes Ford special and what that's going to do for us in the future of naval aviation. So I think it did that. Interestingly, right after I had recorded that, I was driving down the road, taking the boys to some activity as I always do in the afternoons. And I was playing a one of the recent podcasts and it was the one with Crunch and Flash in the authentic media snapshot you guys aired in the middle of September where Flash is talking about the Ford class carrier And so what I will tell people is I think it's a great compliment to our interview because Yank mentions nuclear reactors and how there's new nuclear reactors, but we didn't go down that rabbit hole, which is pretty big. Whereas Flash provides a lot of great perspective on more of the systems behind everything that makes Ford what it is. So I do think they complement each other.
0: Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because we have been airing some of those snapshots recently in order to Not only entice people to go over and sign up at AuthenticMedia.io on the internet, but also just to kind of show the quality of the stuff that we're doing and let them listen to some old voices, like you said, Crunch and Sunshine and a few others. And yeah, I thought the same thing. So I'm tempted to go over there as well and listen to the rest of that because between Yank and Flash, you guys definitely... Had some uh, interesting conversation, and we'll talk a little bit after the interview about some of that negative press you talked about. Now, just one caveat before we get going. You guys do a good job, as you normally do. Thank you, Flander, of explaining all the different terms and everything. But at one point, he says "hods." I think that's H-O-Ds. Do you remember what that stands for?
2: Yeah, so those are the heads of departments. So in the squadrons, we just call them department heads or DHS. It's your maintenance officer, admin officer, et cetera on the aircraft carrier they're called hods and so there's about 18 hods heads of department here's your operations officer your admin officer your amd officer your intermediate maintenance and so all those those group of people who manage all the individual departments for the co
0: okay well with that let's get into flounder's interview with yank and we'll pick it back up on the other side here we go
2: Welcome back to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. I've got a great guest today, J.J. Yank Cummings. Yank, welcome to the show. Founder, it's great to be here. Thanks. And I
1: I love hearing you say great guest. I haven't proved myself yet, but uh, I'm glad that you're hopeful. Thank you.
2: I got to build expectations for our listeners.
1: Yeah, that helps. Every, Every little bit helps.
2: Absolutely. That's right. No, it's great. Yank, you got an awesome background from flying Tomcats, flying Super Hornets ultimately being CEO of the Ford. And so we got a lot to talk about. But let's get to know you a little bit, get into your background. Obviously, with your accent, you came from what, South Texas? It's Mississippi,
1: actually. Southern Mississippi, of course not. Uh, Sharon, Massachusetts, just south of Boston. So I have the correct accent because that's how we roll there in New England. Yeah, I
2: took my kids to, uh, to Boston. My wife just graduated from Harvard in May. And so had a wonderful time up there. It's a, it's such a, a cool area, especially in the summertime in the North End and all that good stuff.
1: Oh, yeah. Summer and fall up there are spectacular. And Boston's such a great city. You get around very quickly. It's not a big city. It's fairly safe, clean, and a lot of neat stuff to see there. I'm a huge fan of the Revolutionary War, and that's just a chock full of Revolutionary War Sites mementos. It's a great location to go walk around in for sure.
2: Yeah, it was. You know, beautiful days. Took the boys on the Freedom Trail. Went to the Constitution. All that good stuff. So it's really great to drive that history home. So I assume you got some clam chowder, right? You got plenty of clam chowder, of course. Lobster rolls. Yeah, all that good stuff. Got to stock up. <laughs> well, good. So how'd you get from growing up in Boston to flying tomcats? What happened? So went to Bates College up there in Lewiston, Maine. Freshman
1: year, decided that. A future in a cubicle, being a doctor, lawyer, or accountant was not very appealing to me. Seemed kind of boring. Asked around, looked at some options, had a couple uncles that went to the Naval Academy. Both flew. One flew A6s, one flew P3s. And I was like, wait, we land planes on aircraft, on ships? What? Do <laughs> more research. Uh, called a recruiter and he tried to talk me into enlisting in the nuclear power program. And I said, no, but he recommended joining the reserves as a Naval Hospital Corpsman to help increase my chances to get in. So I enlisted on the, the reserves my freshman year in college and went to boot camp, took a semester off. So all through college, I was a E3 corn with the Marines in the reserves, which helped me get my improve my chances of getting selected into aviation officer candidate school. So it was all driven by the fact I didn't want to do a boring job. And then as I sniffed around, looked at this world of naval aviation, it looked about just right, relevant, rewarding, dangerous. And then as it turns out, wicked fun.
2: Yeah, wicked fun. Yeah. That's amazing to me, you know, that uh you didn't find out about really carrier aviation until you were in college. I do some about
1: it and then just I just my freshman year in college I just started I became aware of it. And this is all by the way decided long before I saw the first Top Gun, so just for the record, I decided to do this before I saw the movie Top Gun. Then after that, I'm like, oh yeah, I've made the right choice. <laughs> yeah. Just not a lot of exposure in suburban Massachusetts, suburban Boston, the you know, carry aviation. And then when, I, when you start looking at it's just not a big area for that, but as it's like safer down here or out in the West coast, but definitely not, a, not prevalent in the Northeast as it is down here. Yeah, certainly. So graduated college and then uh, went to AOCS. Aviation Can candidate's cool. Gunner resizing Gambala. He was at my uh, retirement ceremony. He was there. He was from Swampskit, Massachusetts. So uh, he had a special relationship with me because I was from Mass. I got more abuse because I had the correct accent. <laughs> and then off to uh, Tomcats. I think we were about the RAG at the same time, the FRS, VF 101 West Coast for a tour out there, VF 24, then 211. Uh, RAG instructor, went to Top Gun, department head with the Puking Dogs. And then transitioned to the Super Hornet while I was department head and then sure. toured as the CEO of the Red Rippers here in Virginia Beach for my first full-on Super Hornet tour. And from there, you know, a couple of joint jobs and picked up Nuke.
2: Yeah. So the recruiter finally got you into the Nuke Power Program. It took him 25
1: <laughs> years, but eventually, yes, I was able to get in to nuclear power. It's funny, when I did a recruiter after my SAT scores, he said, huh, well, the nuclear recruiter, he's like, hmm, you better go aviation. <laughs> and I went, so I proved him wrong 25 years later by actually getting into nuclear power school, doing fairly well down there because I worked hard and was not going to let the nukes close defeat me. I was going to work harder than them and make it out. I did well down there. and really enjoyed it. actually learned a bunch. It was a very interesting program.
2: Well, that, that's great. So just uh, picking up apart a few things in that uh, background. So 24 and the 211 because 24 shut down, right? Correct. And you also were a surgrad for a little bit.
1: Yeah, SERGAD after winging, when uh, I was still an ensign wearing wings, and went back to be a T two instructor, and that was kind of cool being in the back seat of a T two with a lieutenant up front. I'm a I'm an ensign back dumbass ensign with the wings <laughs> and trying not to every day not to get violated or get fired. So it was a very interesting time, being as a young ensign, being an instructor pilot. It's pretty cool.
2: Yeah, that, that is amazing. Uh, do you know if, if if they do that still or they?
1: I don't know. I imagine they must be with a hurt so hurting for um flight instructors. I wonder if they're doing that, but I'm not sure.
2: Yeah, because you know, it's like uh you know, it helps your flight instructor problem, but they're also having problems, I think, filling seats in the fleet squadron. So just for listeners who aren't familiar with that, so basically you you got your wings as a student naval aviator, and then they said, Hey, why don't you instruct for how long? Like a couple of years what, or- six six to eight
1: months it was. Oh, just okay. right down. Yep. Previously, it was like a year or two, and I just, I was like six to eight months. We, they needed help, and I said, Sure. And it was an extra flight time and a great experience. It kind of helped, I guess, build my maturity because you obviously it's all on you and this young student that you just try not to hurt yourself, hurt the jet, or, or do something wrong. And also, teach. And I felt I was relevant to teach because I just come, just got wings. I thought I had some things to offer that maybe a salty former car driver didn't have to offer. that I thought I had more to offer being so young and you new.
2: Yeah. And I found throughout that once I'm in a position to actually teach, then I'm actually learning more. Yeah. They're relying on you to save the jet, to
1: teach, to do things right. So you have to be very very well prepared. And I did skip one tour, by the way, which is arguably my funnest, well, besides command tour, was the VF-102, that uh, money OEF deployment leaving in September 19th, 2001. I forgot to mention that one as well. Oh yeah. That was on TR. Tr one hundred fifty nine days straight at sea, and then mom and uh, the Taliban daily for four months was the best deployment I'll ever have in my life. It was fantastic.
2: Yeah, that is amazing. You guys headed out right after nine eleven, flying the fourteen B upgrade, and just going out there to do good work. And I think we'll come back to was Coochie still in the squadron? Then? There was a bunch of
1: uh, quite a bunch of personalities in that squadron. Trigger Eberhard, Guido, Coochie, Sharman, Hildebrandt, uh, Jack, Cosmo. Cosmo, yep. Uh, Special K, Quinn. Yeah. Goalie. Uh, I mean, it's a really bunch of good, fun people in there. That, that was a fun squad. We had a really good time on our not very limited port calls, but our time at sea was very meaningful and relevant because of what we are doing for our nation. And then when we're back in the boat, just some, some good times by all of us. It was very fun.
2: Yeah, yeah. I had left 102 and uh right around the millennium change and so a lot of the people i cruised with were still in that and we were trying to get jdam out to you guys but i think rightfully so you guys said nope we're going to go with what we got and yeah i remember those discussions i think the the carrier came after us started dropping
1: jdam but we did not yeah just for fear yeah just one a hole we got so we became really good at the professionals choice the GBU 12, the 500 pound laser got a weapon.
2: <laughs> that's right. We became,
1: we became really good at using that piece of gear with no uh, helmet chewing, just look outside, find the target. I mean, it was it's old school flying, and but we made it relevant and uh, lethal and precise. It was great.
2: Yeah, no, that's that's amazing. What a cool tour. Before that, you did Top Gun. You were a Top Gun student. That's a rag. Yeah, the best deal ever. Be a rag instructor, take time out to go to Top Gun. Yeah, it's great.
1: Who'd you go through with? It was Soup Lauderbaugh, oh, Fighter Guy, the classic Soup, Sewer Pickle, <laughs> the legendary Fighter Guy, Dave Lauderbaugh. So we had a lot of fun. We were rag instructors together, obviously, and then flew together. And had a lot of fun out there. He's really good in the jet. He saved my bacon on many occasions with regard-
2: recall or hey, where are you going? Uh, <laughs> that way, Soup. Thank you. So. Uh, great and timely question. Sometimes. Yeah,
1: exactly. (laughs) That's the automatic pilot reversal switch. The Rio goes, hey, where are you going? That's an automatic stick goes in the opposite direction. This way. flounder. of course. That's
2: right. (laughs) We're always going that way. Well, good. So, yeah, like you said, uh, DH and 143, and you guys transitioned as a squadron. And so you went uh, a two-seat in the Tomcat to a single seat. Single seat, yeah. Uh, the squadron, the aviators went to Lamore. All the maintainers stayed here,
1: Virginia Beach, courtesy of Webb Kaler. He tried something different by not inconveniencing 200 people just the 15 aviators. So the pilots, yeah, going for two-seat single-seat was great. Got my 40 hours and uh, got an appreciation for flying single-seat and just how boring that is. No one to talk to or scare or impress. Well, for an introvert like yourself, I mean, it's
2: nice. <laughs> I
1: remember flying some missions. I'm like, man, this is Boring. I have no one to talk to. You know, I wonder why Hornet guys and gals talk so much on tac, tactical frequency, because they have no one to talk to. We're in the two seat. you just cracking jokes, passing food back and forth. You know, I can't imagine a seven hour hop by yourself. That would be, I don't know, that would be that'd be rough.
2: Yeah. So you go back to two seat in the Rippers for your yep. co tour, and yep. uh, where'd you deploy off of there? Off of the
1: uh, Truman. You know, I think an eight-month or standard cruise to a little bit of Afghanistan, a lot of Iraqi freedom stuff. So, first uh, tour in the Super Hornet, really, that's a great jet. And uh, as a pilot, just the biggest thing I enjoyed about that aircraft was just an accurate fuel indicating system. Didn't remember just never really sure if we're going to flame out or not in the Tomcat because of the rolling totalizer, the tape's really accurate. To have a really accurate fuel system and a really money radar was that was really
2: fun to have to fly that jet. Yeah. And so you were on Truman. So obviously you built up a lot of experience off of different aircraft carriers. Yes. One thing I'll say about Truman, I did shake down when I was in 102. We played Red Air off of Truman to shake down the ship off Puerto Rico there. And amazing culture back then. And one of the things I never deployed on Truman again, but people I talked to all the time, it seemed the Truman crew culture persevered in a good way throughout its life. Agreed. Going into the Nuke Power
1: side, driving XO and Nimitz and CO of Ford. Yeah, that Truant has a reputation of just being the go-to carrier that just gets it right on the East Coast. You hear that, that the other reputation. So I think to your point, once you get that culture established, it can be, I guess, squashed. but it, its crew gets it, they know it and they and they kind of live and breathe it. Same thing happened to us on Ford. We had a really good reputation for being really customer focused with regard to CQ for the training command, for the FRSs, to the point where VFA 106 was asking to come to our ship for CQ and not go to any other carrier because of how well our crew treated them. So we had a culture of, hey, you are the customer. We'll find a way to get to yes. We'll never say no unless you really make an incredible request. But FRS's love coming to Ford because that culture thing, which we try to to build early, and have the crew—not just, of course, the captain XO and, and the hods get it, but does that young IT three who's setting up your computer for some random five? Does he get it, he or she? And we felt that they, everyone did, and that's why people love coming to ours to the Ford to do events because of how well we
2: the culture we would established it was kind of neat. Yeah, that is amazing. And my lesson learned from Truman: you establish it early. Despite all the changes of leadership and stuff, it's something that can carry forward uh, with work day to day. Absolutely, if uh,
1: you're espousing it as a CEO, and then folks get it and see you live in that life and how you lead by example, then the department heads get it, the hods get it, down through your divos to the chiefs, and right down to the folks who are slinging you know eggs on the mess decks. They get it, and it's uh, it comes from both sides of the command, from on high and from the folks on the on the mess decks. And how we come together and make something happen to establish a culture? And Truman's got it and Ford still has it from what I understand. And that's just a thing that I decided, nice to be part of that as we kind of built that through uh, my time on the ship. It was great.
2: Yeah. So there's a lot of cool, sexy flying stories that we're skipping in all this background you got. You know, we're here to talk about Ford. So as a little precursor to Ford and understanding that, let's just go a little bit into what did it? take to go from being an aviator to being a ship-driving XO and CO of nuclear power carriers? What's that look like real quick? So the nuclear pipeline. So
1: uh, with a successful squadron command, a screen board selects you for nuclear power. You can assist that screen board by putting a pick-me letter, meaning, hey, I want to be selected for this. So I put that in, got picked up on my second look then off to Nuke Power School for about six or seven months down at Charleston, South Carolina to learn the basics of reactor dynamics, physics, thermodynamics, reactor safety, and going to school with a bunch of uh, ensigns who had graduated college two months previous. <laughs> I had graduated college 20 years and two months previous. So it was a very funny for all the 05s in the back row, just with the headache going, what are we taking three <laughs> classes at a time? you 25 exams. It was a lot of work, but with the right attitude and the right amount of enthusiasm, it was workable. You go from there to prototype. You go, I went to Boston Spa New York to run a reactor plant up there. Two, Navy has two reactor plants up there. You can, there's basically submarine plants. You learn how to operate there. Then your final thing is uh, at Naval Reactors in DC, 13 weeks of the, the finishing school where you learn about your plant you're going to. So you walk out of there about a year and a half after starting training, walk out the door of Naval Reactors to go be exo an aircraft care, with an in-depth knowledge of nuclear physics, reactor dynamics, reactor safety, and public affairs, how to make sure that we treat the program with the proper respect and we don't have a misstep in the media, which as we know nowadays could go south very quickly. So it's a very interesting program. I learned a ton, changed the way I think and address problems and looked at root cause because of the way that the nukes think. I
2: learned a ton. Now that is amazing. You know, a lot of time to make sure that we're running things right on those. So, you know, you mentioned you're in the class with ensigns, nuke SWOs. They're going off to be division officers on nuclear powered ships. So why not continue to develop them to ultimately have them be aircraft carrier CEOs? Great question. And that's a common question that comes from the SWOs, surface
1: warfare officers, about that. And I thought about that a lot. I think of one example that kind of puts it all in perspective to kind of, you know, could a SWO get the USS Gerald Ford through the Strait of Malacca, Singapore Strait at night, two in the morning? Absolutely. They're ship drivers. They know how to manage traffic and get a ship through the traffic separation scheme. But I think of a story in Nimitz when I was out there, when I was going to be the XO, I was in training before I went to Naval Reactors, I was in Catsy watching an Airwing, I think Airwing 11, I believe, do flight ops. And there was a probably had a problem getting aboard. Bolter, 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 bolter. And the de- CAG and the CATSE reps were all going round and round. Hey, should we tank? Should we divert? Will that hurt our. See, all these discussions while this young man's boltering and getting lower and lower in gas? Until eventually they look up, hey, they're breaking down a tanker. Who did that? Oh, the captain. The captain's sitting there. He, he knew what was going on in CATSE. They're just trying to decide, divert or not divert. And he's watching this young man get lower and lower in gas. He's like, screw it. Launch a tanker. I don't care what Katsy's doing, launch a tanker. And I said, right there. That is why an aviator who's flown off an aircraft carrier has to be in that seat to know that that jet's getting extremist. I'm going to lead turn that by launching a tanker and stop the analysis paralysis going downstairs with down below and Katsy. So I think about that a lot. Would a swo note to go, hey, knock it off, launch a tanker? I'm not sure. So things like that, little bits here and there. When you've landed on a carrier, you know what the air crew needs. You know, like a con officer keeps chasing the wind to make it perfectly. Like, stop. (laughs) Just hold it steady, and the pilot will account for it. When you chase the wind, you're making it harder for them. So little things like that, when you've flown off the aircraft carrier, I think helps to have you in that seat because you've lived it and sucked some serious pain day and night trying to get aboard. So that's why I think, could a swole get a ship underway safely, bring it in. Could it transit? Absolutely. But it's those moment of truth with an aviator experience that really, I think, would be hard to get them that experience. Could you make them an air boss for, for two years to learn? Sure. I've heard that discussion. That's a lot of work and time spent not doing their primary mission, which is driving ships. So that's something to think about. And I think about that a lot. I know SWOs, every couple of years, they talk about that, but it's a challenge. and I,
2: I think it'd be hard for them to get there. And I think that my experience as assistant navigator on Enterprise kind of Showed me. That's a little bit of a loaded question for you, but you can take somebody who's been successful at command, understands relative motion when it comes to airplanes and stuff like that, slow that stuff way down to, you know, ship relative motion, though you can get into problems, but you can handle the ship dynamics and the ship driving and all that kind of stuff. And you can learn the new power stuff, but taking somebody who hasn't grown up in aviation and trying to expose them enough to have them be able to make those decisions like you talked about standing, you know, and for listeners out there, if you don't understand, the captain is up in the bridge during flight ops. Catsy, the carrier air traffic control center is down in the bowels of the ship where you've got all those representatives in there. So the captain's always got that kind of bird's eye view, the broader view of what's going on. Hey, launch the tanker because whatever you guys decide down there, at least we'll have gas airborne and buy us more time. So you talked about the new power stuff. So when did the learning ship driving come into your training? Uh, it's almost like
1: on the job training. You go to Newport for a couple of simulators and then off you go to VXO and aircraft carrier. So that jump from a squadron command of 200 to XO of an aircraft carrier of about basically one deployment, 4,500 with only a lot of nuclear power training and almost zero ship driving and understanding of supply. 3M, deck department, (laughs) weapons department. As you know from your time as ANAV, it's quite a jump and it just kind of not necessarily sink or swim, but it's a challenge because you have to learn so much. But then I learned to not try to learn everything. I just trusted people. Hey, Suppo, are we going to run out of food in the next 30 days? Good. Okay. All right. Great. Hey, Gun Boss, how are we doing? You know, if you try to learn everything that goes on in aircraft carrier, you'll never sleep. So that jump, Just managing a large ship was interesting. And then the ship driving part, to your point about relative motion and just drifts, crosswinds, all stuff that we we know naturally. But then how do you drive a ship? That just took some time. And I spent a lot of time on the bridge when we were alongside coaching the conning officer who was controlling the ship just to help me learn the business of ship driving. And then I felt comfortable after doing that for a couple of years and then going off to be a commanding officer or captain of a ship on a LPD uh, amphibious assault warship do that. It's funny. I think we can learn ship driving quicker than ship drivers can learn aviation. It is a lot of inertia, a lot of mass, but it's still a of motion. It's driving to a point and it's just getting ahead of the ship and not needing to be a great ship driver because you box yourself into a corner, if that makes
2: sense. No, that's great. And with your point about your department heads and stuff, it's something that makes guys like you really good on the outside is drop you behind enemy lines. You can learn, you understand, you don't have to be the smartest guy in the room. And so it's a really good way to understand managing such an organization like that.
1: And I've spoken publicly. I'm doing some keynote speaking when I can here. And I talk about one of my components is own it. And what is it? Like yourself. You might struggled early on as EXO the carrier. Should I be aloof should I be a hard ass? Should I be a screamer? Should I be a never smile? And I, I struggled with that a little bit. How should I act? And then I watched Maguire, Emma White, watch him as a one star. He was the perfect gentleman, low key, calm, just a normal individual. I'm like, you know what? I want to be like him. I'm going to be me and not have to be the smartest person in the room has all the answers. I'm going to go in there sometimes, have no clue, but ask good questions and let them know that I'm going to be me, a wise ass from Massachusetts, married with three kids and nothing else and not be the smartest guy in the room or the screamer or the uncomfortable meeting guy. I'm not going to do that. So I've learned early on, I'm just going to be me and accept I'm not going to know everything that's going on and be comfortable that and humble enough to ask questions because I just don't know.
2: Low key guy. I don't think you hit low key.
1: (laughs) Okay. Fair enough. That's i I'll accept that. That
2: assessment is very accurate. (laughs) Uh, and so you mentioned uh, CEO of Anchorage. So after you successfully finished XO tour, they say, hey, go do a deep draft, non new power, just go command a ship 15 months or so and have fun. Yeah, one year. The real jump is that
1: one. You jump from, I knew the reactor plant pretty well on Nimitz. You know, I knew aviation. I knew, and then you go to an LPD, a SWO ship with diesel engines. I've never driven it before. I show up there on deployment, four day turnover. The outgoing captain leaves, and I got to pull in a port that day. Four days after arriving, I go. I'm like, okay, let's do this. You know, so that's the real jump. And you have a bunch of twenty twenty five ensigns, two or three lieutenant jgs, a couple of tenants, and an O four XO executive officer. and That is it. So they're all looking at you like you're some all knowing captain. I'm like, hey, what kind of what are we have four engines on the ship. What, you know, this is very <laughs> funny that, you know, I'm being a little facetious there, but that's a, comp- that's a real jump from going from a nuclear powered aircraft carrier to an amphibious assault warship. That's conventionally powered with a bunch of ensigns on board. But that said, that was a blast of a tour because teaching those young SWOs about fighter spirit, work hard, play hard, and just being good at your job. That was something that was really fun to kind of share that with this young crew and my goal was to get them to want to stay in the Navy. And I, I failed miserably. <laughs> <laughs> well, they were still SWOs. Correct. The challenge, of course. I was trying to get them. they like, there's hope out there. They're like, yeah, no. I'm getting out or going into public affairs or FAO, foreign
2: area officer. <laughs> so I think all but two bailed in the SWO community. Yeah, which is, uh, I think, a whole other discussion. But we're not going to fix that community today. And so you're heading off from Anchorage. And then just because you made it this far doesn't mean you're 100% going to get a carrier. Correct. You go off to CNAF to wait. And so they give you this little project.
1: Yeah, I was N7, the head of aircraft carrier training for US Pacific Fleet. There for a year, waiting to see if I got selected to be an aircraft carrier commanding officer. It's a remote chance I wasn't going to get it. I had a competitive tour to that point. And I got a phone call some afternoon from the AirPAC public affairs officer, Jeannie Grunneveld. She's like, hey, Yank, would you mind taking the director and producer of Top Gun 2 out to the TR to introduce them to the alleviation and be the technical advisor for Top Gun 2? Yeah, uh, yes. I can do that for you, Jeannie. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I want to say that I like to tell folks that I was, the entire Navy, I was the one picked because of who I am. The reality is that's not what happened. We need a 6 who knows Top Gun, who flew the Tomcat, flew the Super Hornet, and the carrier guy that's sitting around doing nothing. Oh, Cummings. <laughs> it was <laughs> like there was one person probably. <laughs> so I wanted everyone to think that, oh, they, they searched me. I was a by-name pick by the Navy. I went through a screening process of thousands of 06s. No, I was the only one available that was doing nothing for about eight or nine months. Not nothing, but I was I was available to help assist them write the screenplay for Top Gun Mavericks. So pretty funny. Yeah. Well, I think
2: there was a screening process because of the thousand or so uh, 06s, none of them met that criteria.
1: Yeah, that's you. Very fortunate to have the Tomcat background and, uh, and, a, and a nuke that I could, you know, knew the, the business of naval aviation. And I think helped being just a complete, well, outspoken wise ass blunt that I was very helpful to, you know, we had many discussions about plot lines. And I'm like, you can't do that. <laughs> That's not what would happen, and that's that's the Navy's not gonna prove that. So a lot of good discussions with Eric Singer, the writer, and Joe Kaczynski, the director, and developed a great relationship with them. We had a lot of fun
2: putting it together. It's really it's really entertaining. Well, that that's great. We had Ferg and Kevin LaRosa on different episodes and really great background stuff. But I do want to ask you, because I heard that Coochie was involved in some of the who set up the Tomcat fighting scene at the end, as far as the split throttles and all that kind of stuff.
1: Yes. I believe that was coochie because I framed out, they said, they gave the final scene to me. Hey, how would you attack this target? And one thing I want to comment, I wish they'd put in one scene where we put a scene in the original screenplay to describe why it had to be GBU-24. Because my wife asked me when we walked out, why not hit it with tomahawks or drones? And I'm like, Sarah, great question. And we had one scene where it was like heavy GPS jamming, you know, JDAM wouldn't work. Tomahawk wouldn't work, not big enough stick. And it ruled it right down to GBU-24, day delivery, low altitude ingress. I wish they'd put that in there to kind of explain that, but they weren't interested in that.
2: Yeah. They explained away the F-35, but they didn't explain the GBU-24 consecutive miracles. Correct. They wanted the F-35
1: exclusively. And I go- First off, you want to go on wicked low, that's not what the F-35 does, and the Navy will not buy off on that. And second, you can't get a camera within 10 feet of an F-35. That's right. I was on a few phone calls with the producers, and I'm going, hey, you want to make this Iron Eagle 7, great, go (laughs) F-35. We want to make it a good movie, go Super Hornet, because you have access to hundreds of Super Hornets. Oh, by the way, you want to put actors in jets, you can do it in Super Hornet and not in the F-35. So very fine discussions. Your original question about yeah they gave me the final scene hey how would you attack this oh, okay well battle box buddy lays all the things that we've done in the, in the jet so it was fun to kind of give that to me to help them frame it and then when for me to chaser to sarge to ferg we all kind of kind of that theme kind of stuck around they made it more dramatic for the public but that was kind of neat to get that final scene and then my only comment to them for the startup was you have to get the f14 startup perfect if you put an apu or a it self-starts for the audience. You lose every Tomcat air crew in the world will walk out. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. I begged Joe, I'm like, please do these 17,000 steps to get the Tomcat started. I loved it. And he's like, what? I'm like, yes, you have to do this. Hand signals. I talked about stow and go, and you know, OBC, all these things we talked about. I gave him that thought. I believe Coochie came in to really nail down the details and then the split throttle is something I never mentioned, so clearly that came from Sarge or Chaser, probably not Fur. I don't think Fur is not a tomcat guy. I'm fairly confident Coochie gave them that because I, I I did not mention that.
2: No, but you you bring up a great point about like the start sequence, and you know I'm sitting there in the theater with my two boys and my wife watching it, and just burst out laughing when like. Roosters in the back seat with all the circuit breakers trying to figure out what to do. Like, oh my god, there was so much in there that was just great content for people who have Originally,
1: had a couple of things in there. I had a a lot in there. I had stinson in there which they pulled out. Yeah. <laughs> and then when he first sat down in the cockpit, Rooster goes, "Can there be any more circuit breakers back here?" <laughs> And uh, they pull that out. But they, that that theme is captured later with he's trying to find the circuit breaker that's sticking out that they had to pop in. So that was fun, too. I mean, also, we had a couple of scenes where he was kind of bad mouth a Tomcat in the original screenplay, and then Mav did the standard, hey, Rooster, look left. And he puts on a hard pull to the right and <laughs> pins his head, you know... <laughs> <laughs> and you go stop making fun of the big fighter. That, that was originally in the original screenplay, and they pulled it out. I understand why they did that, but it's just funny for us.
2: Yeah, we've right. done
1: that a couple times. Or hey, what's that the left? Are you schwacking guys head off or gals head off the canopy when you go the opposite direction?
2: Yeah, Oh, that's good stuff. Love that culture, the Tomcat community. So, well, great. So we finally get to you're you're going to Ford. So when did you find out you're going to Ford? As far as like, what were you doing? I was at still at uh, Air Pack. N7,
1: November, December, I get the phone call from shoe Shoemaker, Airboss. Hey, Yank, you're going to a ship. And uh, kind of I knew it would be competitive, but that's to hear those words. You're like, wow, this is the big leagues. This is happening. And just amazing moment. You know, you bust your ass all these years. You come in not knowing you want to do something like this. And it took me 10 or 15 years to figure out that I wanted to do it. And then now here you go. You've just been given this gold ring, the mother of all command tours, and it's go time. Pretty amazing moment, and also a little bit, uh, a little nerve wracking. Like, wow, there are so many things an aircraft carrier CEO can get fired for. That's right. Not that you don't, you don't, you don't lead that. You don't worry about that. But there's so much going on that any one of those things goes south. You have one little cancerous cell in your team. It could really be very bad for the Navy. So that's something that you think about a lot. Of you know, where is that cancer? Where is that person who's not aligning to Navy culture? And can I find them before it blows up? And causes the ship to have issues. That's such a sizable organization.
2: And with context on that, like you said, I mean, it's a simple thing of you're going to be on the bridge for a lot of stuff that's going on, especially coming in and out of port and all these things going on. But there's other things going on on the ship. So you build up the trust and confidence, knowing that even if you go somewhere else to do something and something goes wrong, you're still responsible. Exactly. I was fortunate to have
1: a really strong navigator and a strong XO. And I would just, during CQ events, carrier qualification events, I would leave the bridge for about two hours and I would go walk the flight deck. Cause you know, I'm a huge fan of LBWA leadership by walking around. And out on the flight deck, talking to sailors, shooting aircraft, I taxied aircraft, I shot aircraft, all those things that were fun. And the crew saw me having fun doing that. And so I was fortunate to get off the bridge. And I know some, Ship captains don't do that, they stay in the bridge the entire time. I'm not going to be that way. I trust you, navigator. Not to hit anybody, I'm going to go for a walk. I'll see you in some unknown amount of time. Keep the ship in the wind, don't hit anybody. You got it? All right? We'll see you later. And then walk around and walk the mess I would, you know, walk the flight deck. It's a good chance to show the trust. That's a key. You're showing the team you trust them by not being in the bridge for 23 hours a day, being dog tired and too afraid to leave the bridge. So, that's something that I really worked hard at and as more of showing trust to the people that I could do that.
2: Yeah. And with an organization and operation like that, if you're not getting around seeing all the other stuff going on, then you can't identify problems and you can't just showcase that personality and, and that, Hey, when it comes down to it, this is fun. We're in a great business. One of the pictures I saw of you out there was with, when they did the VFA 106 came out for the first all PLM CQ with um, C now Airland and everybody out there on the platform, great stuff. Yeah, I love, walk around. I'm, the LBWA is such a
1: big thing because you get leisure by walking around, lead by walking around because you get to feel for what is actually in the mind on the minds of sailors. Is what I'm saying in the one MC getting down to a young fireman or seaman? Are the hods pushing down information that I'm putting out at meetings? Are they do they get it? And then more importantly, you're showing the team, the crew, that you're a human. You have a sense of humor. Sports was my end, as you can imagine. That's how I'd break the ice with any sailor. Who's your sports team? If they're a Yankees fan, instant harassment package. That's right. <laughs> if they're Houston Astros fan, then you, you feel sorry for them. I mean, it's, it's a great way to break the ice. You don't have a sports team, where you're from. Okay. And then that's a great way to kind of show them that two minutes of the captain of a ship talking to some young firemen. They're like, wow, the cats took time out of his day to speak to me. That's, I mean, I didn't really realize I'm important and powerful that was so I get feedback. Hey, by the way, sir, they love the fact you walk around and actually have a real conversation with people, not just transactional in one direction. It's a two-way conversation. And lastly, about that, every day uh, on CQ, I bring out, I will walk out a platter full of chalk chip cookies to the platform
2: every day. (laughs) Still taking care of the
1: paddles. Got to keep paddles happy because they're not happy. Their feet hurt. They're hungry. They're downgrading people for their passes. So I want to make sure you're happy and full and fat. So every day I I'd personally walk it out there and they love that. that every day I come out, get off some cookies, wave a little bit and then go back to the bridge. So pretty fun.
2: It's uh, good stuff. So when Shu called you, did he tell you you're going to Ford? No, uh, it takes
1: about a month for the slate. So a funny story in that I was originally going to the John C. Stennis because I was on Shu's staff. I could say, hey, sir, uh, Stennis, I looked at the schedule, great schedule. Go right on cruise, a lot of CQ time, East Coast, minimal shipyard time. So I said, I whispered in causes ear, Cummings, Stennis. Lo and <laughs> behold, a month later, Cummings is going to Stennis <laughs> for now. And then all of a sudden, it's a that's another another long story how this happened. But it turns out, so Airbus called Air, new Airboss, Bullet Miller, calls me in his office. He's like, Hey Yank, um, what would you say if I told you you're you going to the Gerald Ford? So, of course I snap. I'm like, oh. Uh! I want to go on a cruise. I want to go be a shipbuilder. I want to go on cruise. I want to go kill people. He's like, I knew you would say that. You're still going to Ford. So I believe they did that because they want to put a guy from suburban Boston on a ship with three eyes and a title. So instead of <laughs> yeah. on C. C. S. S., the mighty warship USS Gerald R. Ford. So I think they. And every time I was on a call with he he's like, "Hey, Yank, say your ship's name, <laughs> okay, sir? Mighty warship USS Gerald R. Ford." So. All that said, I did 15 months in the shipyard on Ford, had shipyard workers on board our ship every day for my entire two and a half years, even underway, working on the ship. All that said, I can't imagine going anyplace else. It was a fantastic tour. We overcame some incredible obstacles, developed new technologies, and powered through COVID and kept the ship on schedule. So super proud of our crew. And right now, the ship's on deployment, and I'm hearing just crushing it. They're doing really well.
2: Yeah, on deployment, like you said, and and doing good stuff. So let's take us to through the Ford. What what makes the Ford the Ford? I mean, it's okay, it's a new version of the Nimitz, got it, still shoots airplanes, catches airplanes, all that. We hear about the catapults and the ordnance elevators a little bit and the islands a little back, but you know, give us a deeper understanding of what makes Ford. Absolutely.
1: And I told every distinguished visitor came on board of the Ford this thought that I think we should take great pride in the fact the Navy on this ship completely erased the whiteboard and started from scratch. They could have phased in catapults on four, then AAG on the next ship and slowly chipped away at it. But actually, Secretary Rumsfeld said, negative, put it all on one ship, make it happen. Oh, by the way, here's a cost cap. <laughs> <laughs> so It took great courage to, to not just make a USS Bush type ship, they made a brand new ship from stem to stern. It's new. Reactor plants, new, flight deck design, dual band radar, the weapons elevators, supply elevators, the crew comforts, the kitchens, everything. Only thing that's the same, I think a, I believe it's the same Nimitz Hull and the same screws. That's it. So I thought it'd take great courage for the Navy to do this. It comes at a cost, literally, but the Navy made it happen. So what makes the Ford unique? I mean, we'll just start the most visible, the flight deck. The island's smaller. It's further aft by about 140 feet. It's a little bit bigger flight deck by about a quarter acre. Emails, basically electric catapults, advanced arresting gear. It's no longer, you're not flying into a wall of hydraulic power. It's basically a computer controlled deceleration. The weapons elevators, four of them, advanced weapons elevators, four go right to the flight deck. You have um, in-deck refueling stations, which is kind of a, it seems like that's not a big deal. But you imagine you can imagine Flounder having those fighters in the fighter row getting hose from the deck edge, pulling a hose all the way across what's called the street, that path to the catapult in front of the island, is gone. You have in deck fueling stations along the fighter row, so you can pull out just put out ten feet of hose, vice, hundred fifty feet of hose, which takes four people to do it. So you could keep access to the catapult is much quicker in the, with this design. And that island being further aft, you've basically reduced the amount of unusable space on the ship by doing that. So you can get aircraft, they can land, no need for a respot, fuel them in the same spot they are, reload, maintain, refuel, right back to the catapult very efficiently and quickly. So that in itself is the biggest part of uh, the Ford that I think is not revolutionary, it's evolutionary. It's not revolution; It's a brand new ship and brand new design that's going to be game changing. hate that cliche for the Navy, but it's amazing the way that's designed. Real quick, so you
2: were able to fly while you were go four too. So did you get some traps? Sure did. Forty
1: traps, thirty with the PLM, by the way, which is a whole other discussion. That precision landing mode is
2: ridiculous. Yeah, I had OJ Catlin on on a show, and we we went deep into PLM. Just amazing, awesome technology. It is unbelievable. I the
1: first couple of passes I did it, I I was fighting it because I'm a knucklehead. I kept trying to put in stick inputs. I'm like this is hard. I said, you know what I just stopped touching the stick, rolled out behind it, put the thing in the thing, pushed the thing, and didn't touch anything in a
2: rails pass. It's amazing, so that in itself is uh, incredible yeah this on that i i I took the boys to tailhook for the first time this past month, and uh you know nine year old takes off in an f thirty five simulator, shoots down a couple bad guys, drops a bomb, comes back for a rails pass onto a carrier. I'm like yep. There you go. Oh, how is that? <laughs> Maybe it's easy, Dad. Yeah. What are you talking about? Uh, so landing with that Ford superstructure, did you notice
1: difference? Unnotice- the burble is unnoticeable. I mean, I'm not a test pilot guy. I'm kind of a mouth breather, so I don't really look for that. I just try not to hit the ramp and try not to bolter. Burble effects, yeah, I'm not a test pilot. I will tell you that when you touch down on the advanced arresting gear, below deck machinery accelerates that wire out for the first half second so for that first half second, that wire is flying form with the aircraft. Oh, wow. And then as a computer controlled D cell, it's not just one it's two computers if you'll control the slowdown, like two fishing rod reels are slowing the aircraft down. So when you first touch down, Nimitz class, there's no doubt, because you're flying into that wall of hydraulic power. Here you touch down and like, well, I saw a centered ball. I was on speed. I kind of feel like, oh no. I- <laughs> there it is. Stop. Yeah, you kind of feel it's a very soft landing, if you will. And the runout is varied each time because of environmentals, your speed when you touch down. So it's not like you touch down and look over, oh, that's a three wire. It could be plus or minus a half a wire when you caught based on the environmentals when that computer controls your D cell. So the is the a little different. It's a, You feel like you bolter for a first
2: quarter second. Then like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm slowing down now. And sure enough. And also with computers controlling both sides, then if you've got a little drift right or something, it's going to help correct that, keep you on roll out center line, minimize the risk of you coming
1: out of the LA. Absolutely. If you touch down a wrong weight setting is there, it sense okay, that's not a, that's not a, an E2 or that's no a, kidding. It'll, it'll, yeah. It'll, it'll save itself from. Yep. And then the Nissan body advanced arresting gear. It's just catch heavy, catch light, catch an aircraft. We haven't designed yet. You know, the super Hornet F-35 replacement. doesn't matter. It just a matter. Just a computer software change. Done. Nimitz class arresting gear has limitations both on the catapult and arresting gear for the weight of aircraft that it's servicing. Ford class, EMOL, AAG do not have that restriction. Just a computer control change, done. So it's very flexible and maintaining is much easier. Half the size of the folks in those spaces that are on Nimitz class. It's amazing. So then the catapult, you took some catapult shots. What's the email cat shot like? It's uh, a different feel again. I, I CQ and Ike before I went to uh, the Ford, and i has been nine years since my last trap. And that catapult shot, it, I was like, "Wow!" <laughs> I've forgotten about. I'm like, "Damn!" With E-Malls it's kind of like getting on the gas of a Tesla. Not that I own a Tesla, but I've been in one. It's basically a, a linear induction motor-driven catapult, so you accelerate very quickly. But the end game was wicked smooth. When you see in Top Gun Maverick, you see Maverick come off the front of the jet as the head does this. We've all done it. There's no head bump when you come off the front end of the email. It's just you're just flying. It's wicked smooth. It feels like driving down a gravel road. It's kind of a little gravelly, then you're airborne. There's no off the front end, dunk, with your head getting slammed forward. And because it gives you the exact airspeed you desire that you dial in by half a knot. Because it's checked, you know, 80 million times before it arrives at the end. So you're getting the exact speed that you asked for is what you get. Unlike steam-powered catapults where that valve, that CSV valve opens. I'm like, eh, that's about right <laughs> for the speed. This is legitimate. The speed you ask for is what you're going to get, which is pretty amazing. I think it's a early, pretty heavy push early, but it's a smoother end game, which I believe over time from AAG and emails will will extend the life of the Super Hornet because of the ease of uh, the landing and the ease of the launch. Great point. Less wear and tear on our
2: aircraft. Try to keep them around as long as possible.
1: Real quick for E you'll enjoy this. There are no. Coming in before flight ops, hours before and doing no-loads, those catapult shots that are done in the hours, gone. It's turnkey. You come down, turn it on, and employ. There's no ELONGs, you recall, where you had to warm up the tubes, wake us up at whatever, 6 a.m., up 4. Yeah. Getting the- What's going to wake up the JOs now? I don't know. They're going to be <laughs> a lot of sleeping. Well, there's, there's no water break. The, the whole ship shakes. That is gone. That The, the uh, shuttle just stops in like about two inches. And you just reverse the polarity and it just stops. There's no water break, smash. Oh, I see. It's not banging up against something. It's no, just it's just stopping.
2: It's stopping. it just stops, and
1: it stops. It stops. So there's no like, oh, it must be noon. That's a twelve o'clock launch. You don't. So you walk around the ship. You kind of know. You're not sure what time of day it is. You don't feel <laughs> the ship shake. Like, oh, it's a one thirty launch. <laughs> it's super. It don't, you don't. And you can do no loads import like pier side. Don't need to be underway with the steam up there. It's an amazing system and. Again, no maintenance the flight deck crew, which is the limiting factor for Nimitz class for any class of ship on a carrier, it is the maintenance time before and after is almost not zero, but it's down it's a fraction of what it is on Nimitz. So you would do your end of day flight checks, that's on two hours after flight up stop on Nimitz class. Four class,
2: twenty minutes, turn off the key and go to, and go to hit the rack. You're done. Yeah. That's a really good point when we talk about like the future of air warfare, and you know, a big piece of that is our people. And so for listeners out there, who don't understand. It's like squadrons run a twelve on twelve off schedule. You have two shifts of people doing stuff in the work centers, but the carrier flight deck crew, they're on before flight ops start to get things ready. They run all the way through flight ops and then they clean up afterwards. So if we can shave off time front and backside, make maintenance easier, so they're because maintenance they're kind of do after all that's done. So it's it's brutal on our young folks out there on the flight deck. Yeah, those no-fly days are designed
1: for one set of people, the flight deck crew. Everyone else could continue to do, could go for a month straight. But we burn off our uh, aviation boats and our handlers, our equipment folks, because it's the same crew. There's no like, hey, bring in the, go to the bench and get the, you know, the uh, blue and gold team as one team. So when we stop flying, it's for one reason. It's for them, to get them rest. Because we can't have folks taxiing, you or I, in a jet up close to the edge of the flight deck being a month at sea operating in 120 degree weather. We can't have him or her tired because that's going to cause mishaps. So it's that, that no fly day really is for them to allow them to Get a chance to get off the flight deck, get a couple of days rest, recoup, get back up there, uh, working 18, 20 hour days in some really hard, dangerous, and challenging conditions. Yeah,
2: no working from home there. You're on. No, there's no remote ops. <laughs> <gonna carry it>. <laughs> no. <laughs> so the yeah, you mentioned you know the path of the cat and landing and servicing and launching. You know no respot stuff. So it, it makes me think about the future of unmanned operations. Here we talk about a 60-40 split. Did you get into like how is this going to work when we bring in MQ-25 and all that kind of stuff?
1: No, but the ship is ready for that because, as I mentioned, miles and AEG are ready to do unmanned stuff. As far as the space allocation for unmanned stuff, that's still in works. You know, F-35, as you know, has a pretty large footprint for their gear that they have on an aircraft carrier. What gear will the MQ-25 need? That's still in work. So, did not get involved in that. In my current job working for a large aerospace industry currently, I'm getting a little bit of visibility to that. And um it is certainly something that, you know, engineers are engineers. They don't think about what the ship looks like. My goal here in Virginia Beach, I bring these engineers out whenever I can. I The first place they go, let's go to the carrier. I want you to see how our sailors live and operate, where the stuff's got to fit because you just can't make a giant box that's going to go be stashed in the hangar bay with everything else that gets stashed in the hangar bay. So, it's a challenge to make sure that we, when unmanned does occur, are we making gear that's going to be able to fit an aircraft carrier? Air Force has no concerns for this. We do because we have to carry our stuff in a space and we're, and we're running out of space. It's a zero-sum game on the carrier, as you know. We can't just create more spaces or build another hangar. We have to do it on our ships. It's so very challenging and I think uh,
2: something we have to think about more aggressively in the defense industry. Yeah. I was thinking about – like when we were JOs, I think into maybe department head and stuff, we had the Triple chops that we would do, the Hummer Hilo, Hoover, when we had S3s. And those guys would run 24-7, maintaining maritime domain awareness and stuff like that. And and you talk about the being able to launch and recover aircraft more easily on the flight deck personnel. And I you know, I'm thinking like unmanned aircraft launch in when the manned aircraft aren't going and just making it all easier because of the Ford setup. So, you know, a bit of speculation. I I don't have any expertise in that area, just my background. But
1: Yeah, same. Boeing brought the MQ-25 deck handler trainer to the Aviation Bosa Mate Association's conference last month to kind of see how we're going to pass off, how we tax this aircraft. It was really interesting to see, you know, it's basically you have a, a waist belt, like a Batman waist belt, a wrist computer on uh, strapped to your wrist and a little joystick. And you sit there and you actually sit down behind that yellow shirt who was taxing the aircraft and you follow his signals with your little joystick.
2: And the yellow shirt is facing the unmanned aircraft and the person doing the control <laughs> is standing behind that guy. Okay.
1: Yeah, so unlike what we would do in the jet, we would go, what he would tell us, the MQ-25 taxer is behind just doing whatever the, the yellow shirt does. Whatever. It, if he says go left, just push the joystick to the left. <laughs> So I actually tried it a couple of times. I actually got the MQ-25 into the shuttle successfully, but it's interesting how we're going to pass this thing off around the flight deck and then hand it off to the ground control station where it goes in attention right before launch. So there's a lot of challenges ahead. And like anything, we think about, to your point, the big sexy stuff. We don't think about training. Are the ABHs, are they going to be ready to do this? We crunch an MQ-25. It doesn't matter how cool the operators are. The thing's in the hangar bay has got a big dent in it because we jacked up the taxi. That's going to get us nowhere. So I can assure you the Navy is not thinking about this as aggressively as they should. That's an important thing, training for our young sailors to make sure we treat this thing right and we don't crunch it on the flight deck.
2: Yeah, because it needs to be airborne doing its job. You know, I'm thinking about the guy, you know, he's behind a yellow shirt who's taxiing this aircraft. And obviously, from our experience, you could be all the way back on the fantail, getting taxied up. You're getting handed off from one yellow shirt to the next. So, this little joystick operator with the, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm envisioning when you talk about the arm thing, the Predator movie is going against arm, with his little arm uh, controller. So, now this guy, does he have to sprint from one yellow shirt to the next? A lot of things that's got to get figured out.
1: Yeah, no, it's you'll you push, you know, I think as I recall, you hit, hey, ready to accept transfer. The taxi light flashes, meaning, hey, I'm looking for somebody to pick me up. And then the next yellow shirt, MQ25 taxi. Grabs it with his Predator wrist controller <laughs> and they hand it off. And yeah, so it's very interesting and uh, something that Boeing is working on to make that a reality. And uh, it's a, it's going to be a challenge. And we can't think about the flying the thing and getting it to fly a thousand plus miles and refuel and do all the things it's going to do. Great. That's the fun stuff. How do we make sure we get it off the flight deck without planting it in the water or smashing it into a piece of uh, support equipment? That's the part we have to think about. We're not, maybe we're not thinking about
2: that as well as we should be. We touched on ordnance elevators. There was a lot about getting these things working. What's the big deal about these ordnance elevators on Ford? Great question. That was my life for two and a half years. <laughs> Those
1: things were way behind schedule. Here's a big the mistake that was made and a lesson learned for future whatever ship design. Build a stinking prototype. They did not build a prototype to test out this technology. AAG and EMALS did. They had prototypes at the Pax River, Lakehurst, I'm sorry. But there was the uh, uh, the Navy and Newport News Shipbuilding agreed, we'll just build a prototype on the – we'll have the actual prototype be on the ship. So we kind of were the standard building the airplane as you're flying it. That's what drove the long delays in getting that system up. Now, that said, the system, when working, and it's working great right now, is twice as fast and twice as powerful as the hydraulic – spool, electric wire, cabled elevators on Nimitz class. They're really nice. Also, safety-wise, as the elevator goes down, because it's not a, a spooled cable, doors can close behind the elevator and make that ship even safer because now you're making a damage control barrier. So let's say, like, if you have an elevator in Nimitz class, open up all at the bottom of the ship, that's a risk. A firework to start right there, you have no damage control barriers or fire boundaries. AWE, Advanced Weapons Elevators, has the ability to close... As the elevator goes up and down, you can close behind it uh, these damage control fire boundaries, which is really helpful. But the big thing about the weapons elevators is they four of them dump into a weapons handling transfer area, one deck below the flight deck, and it's three times the size of the forecastle. Oh, wow. There's no bomb farm behind the island, which is typical on Nimitz class. They're all below deck, out of the environment, one deck below the flight deck. And there's these two giant spaces there that we can stash ordnance, seven events of ordnance there for the events. And more importantly, if a seeker head goes down, they can troubleshoot it right there, not send it back down to the magazine, which is typical on Nimitz class. So I think on Ford class, the folks who made out are the flight deck, the WEPS folks, and the nukes, all really flourished in the new technology because of brand new design for magazines, for the engineering folks and a flight deck. And by the way, the way that the magazines are designed, Flannel, on my last point, I'll turn it back over to you. The days of hauling the weapons through the mess decks are over. You don't haul a weapon through the hangar bay or through a mess deck. There are elevators designed to stay out of the way of the crew and not shut down meals for a day while you roll 2,000-pound weapons through eating areas. <laughs> <laughs> Come on! The it's not it. Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, it's the way it's been since sailing ships. You know, wrapping up the living quarters to put the cannons and all oh, that. Yeah, kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah, it's a new world. But the weapons elevators are working great.
1: I was told the onload for the ship when Ford took their weapons, it took a fraction of the time what it did with Nimitz class because of the speed and power of, of the weapons elevators. It was done very quickly because of that little design. So it's kind of neat.
2: That is really cool and great perspective. You know, back to your point where basically the whole form's the same, but we just completely redid it, actually taking lessons learned of bomb farms and running weapons through the mess decks and all that stuff, saying we can do this better and just and better not only for the crew, but for the ordnance men who have to deal with that. I mean, right on, they're in cover. The weapons and stuff are out of the elements. So, anytime we can again wear and tear on things. So, all good news. I'm glad they finally got that.
1: That said, that eats up a lot of air wing birthing space. That's why there's a, there's a thousand less racks on Ford than on Nimitz class. Oh, my God. A thousand. A thousand. So a thousand. They may have overshot a bit, so they're actually just finding ways to add more racks back in. Oh, no. Of, <laughs> well, by the way, while I was around the stateroom and rack discussion, there every officer stateroom has a toilet and a sink. What? A shower. Every officer stateroom has a shower toilet sink so the days of so you know walking 50 yards in your bathrobe in the you know passing you know seaman jones like you know <laughs> hey yeah. it's like 10 o'clock in the morning you're just getting up yeah, and you're walking right. the bathrobe to the head to take a shower you're like yep i'm the aviator guy that slept in until 9 30 because i was up till two last night that's right those days are over you just get up to your stateroom's a shower right there in your stateroom
2: huh Interesting. That's a, that's a nice crew comfort. Yeah, good stuff. But a thousand less racks. I remember Nimitz-class ships just being overburdened on racks, mainly because you, know, you had so many visiting staffs during like GFX and all that kind of stuff. So if you allow the birthing space, they'll come. But hopefully with the manning levels maybe coming down a little and i don't know that's that's uh, they are planning to add some more racks back in they definitely
1: overshot but they're going to fix that in coming uh shipyard events downstream but yeah they're putting you know oh four or five staffers in birthing like even like but there there is to that point there's no 220 man birthing like you saw in emma's class the biggest one's 50 so they kind of a little smaller sets of uh of birthing but yeah staff you want to come ride the ship great you're in the <laughs> you're in the upper rack of three. So you sure you want to come out? Oh, something just popped up. I can't make it out. Yeah, I thought so. I guess yeah. it
2: wasn't that important after all. Guess it
1: wasn't that important after all, yes.
2: So we got a listener question from Jim, who comes across as YouTuber. How were air operations different from other carriers you served on than the Ford? So how does all this affect the air operations? Any changes? So the goal for the Ford class, as I understand it,
1: was to make, as far as execution, no different from Nimitz class. Same shuttle, same procedures with regard to catching and shooting aircraft. So at the tactical level, no real change there. It's the same process of getting to the catapult, same process of landing board ship, just a little bit are in different locations. As far as air ops, I didn't get a chance to see air ops, cyclic ops very much. It was early stage back when we we're going through post-delivery tests and trial. But I understand... The big change is now, is I, I believe they call it, I think, peel and shoot. Because of that large area in front of the island, and they can stack four or five more Super Hornets along the deck edge that won't get trapped behind the island, they can get aircraft, as I mentioned previously, to the catapult much quicker and more efficiently. So you can get more jets to the catapult sooner. So that's a big change from you know when you have someone stashed behind the island or across the landing area on the port side. They're stuck there, and it's hard to get them out with all that usable space increase, a lot more flexibility for a flight ops and no respot. You know, conceivably you come back and trap, there's no like, we've, we've all been there, you're in your gear following your jet for the next launch before they park it. Oh, by the way, you got to swap a box, you got to refuel it, whatever. So it's changing flight ops, much more efficient and getting refueled, maintained and reloaded much quicker than on Nimitz class. That's a big change. As far as airborne, no change. Same stacks, same fifty-five second interval. There's no change there. Catapult procedures exact same, landing board chip exact same. Those are all what kept the same by design to not throw a curveball at naval aviation, you know, late in the game after a hundred
2: years of doing this. And so
1: that's one thing that remained
2: consistent. So one of the things I heard there was you got oh, it's all that deck space, maybe they'll start adding racks for the staff up on the uh, on the flight deck.
1: <laughs> right, 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 right. Cat one, yeah. <laughs>
2: So, yeah, absolutely. We
1: can, we can make. I'll, I'll call uh, Powder as the current CEO. Hey, we got a great idea out of the box thinking from this podcast. Put stateroom in a Connex box on yes, the flight.
2: That's right. Get all that extra space. There you go. Oh, man. You mentioned you took her through the uh, post delivery sea trials and stuff like that. Great shot of the underwater detonation next to Ford. So, what was the deal with that? After my time, Polly was the CEO for that. We helped prepare the ship.
1: I got heard some stories about that experience, and they said, they said it was pretty amazing. I mean that's a forty thousand pound weapon detonated very close to the ship. And uh, talking to Polly, the biggest lesson learned from everybody was, hey, earplugs, they forgot to give earplugs. And people were kind of they hurt their teeth. They weren't they're clenching their teeth when the detonation occurred and it kind of, you know a little bit of trauma to the mouth from that shockwave. And then Paulie told me that there are engineers, of course, up and down that ship for that event. And he said, he goes, engineers like, wow, I'm surprised that's still working on system X. So it works. The ship worked spectacularly. Yeah. They, they had, you know, the, the reactor plant got restarted very quickly. I mean it worked as advertised, even better when engineers are like, Damn, that thing works still. I thought for sure would, with that shock, it would be at least temporarily disabled. But it really, the ship, I was against that decision to do that because I wanted to get the ship on cruise sooner. But now we've validated it, and the ship did really well. So, I mean, that's something we proud. I mean, Newport News shipbuilding has its challenges, but they make a damn good ship. That thing took the blow and was ready to get – could have been back in the fight very quickly.
2: Mm -hmm. Like you said, other classes of ships, when you're building a whole bunch of them, you take like number two or three put it through this survivability testing, but when you're only cranking out one Ford class every few years, it's like, if we're gonna validate this, let's get this done so we can fix whatever needs to get fixed.
1: Yeah, I was against it because I wanted the ship to get on deployment to stop all the naysayers. But, you know, it required the Navy to go ask Congress for a delay. They didn't want to do that. Like, no, I don't want to go back. (laughs) Just get it done and we'll just take the consequences. But the ship went out earlier than I expected and it's doing really well. So I'm happy for the team.
2: And you've, you've talked about a bit of the messaging. You know, I saw you doing a lot of messaging on Ford trying to turn the tide of, yes, this has been a challenge, but you did a lot of effort in turning that message around too. We're wrapping this up. We're working through our last challenges, and this is going to be an awesome platform.
1: Yeah, the communication, but I got there, I was myself guilty of believing the media reports that the ship didn't work. And I'm about to be the captain. When I get out there, I'm like, those are all incorrect. Those stories were inaccurate, or they used data from seven years previous, for example. Our goal when I was there, I talked to the media department. I'm like, look, I don't, to your earlier point of trust, go and get some, go and make this happen. Whatever you want to do, I don't care. Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, whatever it is you want to put it on, get the word out and get media to the ship. And we had a couple of media events. but brought all the former naysayers to our initial um, aircraft compatibility testing. They're out there for a day. And I'm like, they had free reign. Wherever you want to see, talk about, bring it. And we had a really good event. And one of the reporters talked about, this is the most welcoming event I've ever been on for a ship visit. Thank you. So, and then we started a regular routine of getting folks out there just being open and honest, seeing what they want to see. We didn't have any predetermined tour routes. Just go and see the ship. And that was very helpful to kind of turn that media tide and to stop the badness of uh, the poor reporting and incorrect reporting on the Ford capabilities. And I, and again, validated by the fact the ship is on cruise right now, I haven't seen one media report about anything that's going wrong, which you knew they would jump on it if they could.
2: Yeah, that's right. Got a couple of listener questions before we get to wrapping this up. And these come from our Patreon supporters who support the show, and, and we give a little heads up on who we're going to have on. And Jevin asks, where do you stand on the discussion that Super Hornet squadrons should specialize into separate strike and fighter squadrons populated by Fs and Es, respectively? And will the addition of F-35Cs to the fleet act as a catalyst for this? You flew the E in 143. You flew the F. They got F-35s coming out. Every now and then people talk about, hey, we should specialize our Super Hornet squadrons.
1: Yeah, I think uh, obviously a great question discussed extensively through the years about this topic. And I think two thoughts. One, if it could help part support and maintainer awareness to an aircraft, you'll know, get it enough. although it's the same jet for the most part, but that rear cockpit's a challenge sometimes for maintaining that, keeping it up. It, it would be helpful if we could have one, all of the... Fs are here doing this mission, ATs, technicians, groom for this mission alone. That would probably make the part support logistics easier. But I know for a fact that the whole thing about the Navy is keeping 44 strike fighters in the flight deck. Any plan that reduces that number is going to die on arrival because that is how we have presented ourselves to Congress and the American people. We're going to have 44 strike fighters at a minimum. Anything less than that is unacceptable because that's how we justify our, our ability to wage war from the sea. Specialization, I think, is challenging. As you know, can you imagine being an air to air specialist? Now you are, like in the Air Force, you are pinned to that mission. And that's a reduction in ability to expand your career and get an experience of different, well, in this case, different environments of uh, employment and different leaders. If you're not an air to air person, you're going to get this, you know, potentially. Pigeonhole and leadership and not really expand your horizon. I think a specialization, while maybe on paper, I'm sure there's a way that saves money and probably more efficient, but I think for a career management, probably not the right answer because you need to have folks who are good at air to air and air to ground in both arenas so that at the moment of truth, when the balloon goes up, I don't care what you are, go and deliver this weapon. I'm not a, I don't care. We just lost a bunch of air to air fighters. You're an air to ground guy. Don't give a shit. Go jump in a jet and go shoot down some ex-country fighters. So I think in the end of the day, to be flexible, we have to be dynamic and versatile and not be pigeonholed into a mission. Because if it's war, it's all of us in the fight, not just the air-to-air, air-to-ground players.
2: Very well said. So you're in the Virginia Beach area you're working in the defense industry, you know, so what do you got going on? I see the hook gatherings that you're you're putting out there on the uh, Warriors Tap House. Warriors Tap House. Yeah, yeah, which makes me jealous. I wish I could be there more in that community to, to enjoy those things. But what you got going on? Yeah,
1: so the club at Oceana is dead. Unless the squadron puts together a dedicated event. The Friday nights that we knew is, as youngsters is gone. You know, security requirements... Different environment now. I think a lot more married folks are in squadrons than we saw when we were younger, and that just bums me out because the, uh, the Officers Club is such a great culture thing and what imprint on our fighter spirit mural, if you will. So this Tailhook Association, I mean, I was to be quite honest, I didn't want to do it, but I figured if not me, then who? I volunteered to kind of run our local Tailhook Association, Red Room Six. I am trying to reinvigorate the local gatherings to include active duty. That's that's my next project. Not a lot of active duty showing up, but we're getting there. Actually, you can show up at Warriors Tap House. come on out and talk to uh, some really, I mean, some Vietnam vets, some hardcore old school Super Hornet, Hornet, and Tomcat players. They have some really great stories. So I've been working that through LinkedIn and using Tailhook Association to kind of get kind of refurbished the mailing list for this area. So that's one thing. And then I'm doing, as I mentioned previously, you know, I'm obviously a huge extrovert. I love being around people and making a difference. So I've been sharing some of the stories that we just talked about with corporate America through keynote speaking and consulting when I can. And it's been fun to kind of share simple themes that made us successful and made our team successful with corporate America. For example, hey, I'll write in a handwritten note. Whoa, mind blowing. Hey, just walk around and talk to people. You have a really good conversation. And by the way, when you do that, actually listen by being silent. Show them you care. That's my bumper sticker. Show true concern for the well-being of your people and they'll love you for it. And everything else will fall into place. So it's been fun sharing stories about Ford flying fighters with corporate America. And then just kind of sharing some leadership principles, seen from a different perspective in a very blunt and sometimes funny way in, in my true style. it has been that's, that's been kind of exciting as well. Am I got a website, JJCummingsLeadership.com. If you want to check it out, We're going through a revamp. But I'm happy to share stories with anyone who wants to hear a, a wise-ass fighter pilot and ship driver talk about the Navy and how... We made a difference and I thought it did a good job on our teams leading and you know making the Ford successful, for example.
2: No, that's uh, it's great. You got a lot of amazing lessons to be able to help others with their work. So that's good. So you mentioned the website. Where else can we find you? You still got your MySpace account active? Or- MySpace
1: is rolling. Yes, yeah. I got that. You can fax me yeah. or me. <laughs> Teletype is will work.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm not.
1: I've never been a social media person because of the jobs I have on LinkedIn as JJ Cummings and www.jjcummingsleadership.com. Somebody out there has jjcummings.com. Oh. Asshole. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you're not using it. Would you let it go? I'll pay you for it.
2: That's right. Yeah. But that's uh,
1: not happening. Not are it, listening
2: and they'll reach you. <laughs> I know.
1: I'll pay like 75 cents for that, clearly <laughs> that name. So yeah, so on my website and LinkedIn is certainly a great way. And I'm um, yeah, happy to share some stories and just shoot shoot the breeze,
2: which I enjoy doing. So before we wrap, we've got the tradition of the call sign. So you're Yank. What was the circumstance where this was bestowed upon you and how did it come <laughs> up? So my call sign when I was a Surgrad or a, called
1: Plowback back then, was actually Dancing Bear. <laughs> there, was a, there was another – no, no, it was Dancing Cub because there was Lieutenant Cummings, a big chubby P3 guy that his call sign was Dancing Bear. Here comes me, not chubby, Cummings. Hey, you're Dancing Cub. <laughs> so i like, oh, shoot. So I went to the fleet out to the VF-24 Miramar. By the way, the VF-24, that ready room scene in the first Top Gun is the VF-24's ready room. And they kept the couch the same – the same, they didn't change it since the movie was filmed when I was in there in 90, 96 was kind of funny. But obviously a lot of iterations of Cummings could have come out um, mm-hmm. and could have been super like, so as they're going through the iterations, as you know, you can show no response or emotion for what is potentially going to be your call sign. So there was some pretty brutal call signs. I'm like, this was okay. Didn't say anything. And then eventually they they went to Yankee oh, you're a Red Sox guy, you're from Boston area, Yankee, shortened to Yank. So I got lucky because there could have been a lot worse call signs <laughs> than, my last, than my last name. So I was fortunate the Bubbas out there at 24 were kind to me. But yeah, it's basically short for Yankee being from the Northeast. And the irony, I guess, being a Red Sox fan, being named Yankee, that's, that's the catch.
2: Well, that's awesome. I knew that this was going to be a great conversation, so I appreciate the time, Yankee. Thanks for joining us and answering questions and and walking us through all this. So always good to see you. I appreciate the opportunity and uh, thanks for
1: allowing me time to share stories about a ship, which we poured our heart and soul into to get out of the shipyard, defeat the social media negativity, also the negativity in the DOD and as parts of Congress to defeat that and to hear stories of sailors from Ford on the high seas, getting port calls, doing great work for our nation in this brand new ship that folks thought would never get off the pier. It's so rewarding to have been a small bit of that. I'm so glad that you gave me a chance to share the kind of some behind the scenes of the challenges of getting Ford out of the shipyard, through testing and out, and out to the fleet. So thank you for the opportunity and look forward to seeing you at the next trade show, Tailhook, or if you're ever in Oceania and come on out to the first Thursday of every month, Warriors Tap Taphouse, to the Red Room 6 Tailhook Association get-together, the FCL
2: Awesome. Love it. Thanks, Yank.
0: All right, very good. You guys sound like you had a lot of fun there, Flounder. Big thanks to you and Yank for making that work out. And wow, well, I learned a lot, but hold on. First, did you say at the beginning, did you or your wife or somebody graduate from Harvard? I think I missed that.
2: Yeah, well, that was my wife. My boys and I feel like we all graduated cuz it was a it was a long process, but As part of the, you know, the military spouse goes through a lot, as we all know. And one of those things is the managing career. And So my wife went through that Harvard master's program, which she had to go on site in Boston, had to go. She it was quite enjoyable, but also a lot of work. So, yeah, that happened in May. So I took the boys out there and we had a great time.
0: Okay. That one almost snuck by, but I thought, wait, I don't know if I remember hearing about that, but that's exciting. And man, that's impressive. I know not just anyone gets in there and then that's a real feather in the cap afterwards. So anyway, I just have a couple notes here. I mean, golly, what a master course that discussion was on even just like leadership and leadership by walking around. I mean, taking cookies out to the LSOs, walking around, talking to the E1, E2, E3, newest sailors on the ship who can see that here's the guy who's in charge of this entire ship, and he's talking to little old me. I mean, I think everybody can take something from that part of the discussion for sure.
2: Yeah, I agree. And, you know, the aircraft carrier, and we talk about it a little bit, some commanding officers, and whether on aircraft carriers or others, they get themselves so they're stuck feeling like, I have to be in this position to make sure things are going well where you build up that team and that trust and confidence and knowing that there's risk. And so he did a really great job of that, that allowed him to then go out and do those things, engaging with his team. So it was really amazing.
0: Sounds like it. Yeah. It would have been a fun command to be a part of it. Sounds like, but yeah, I was surprised to hear, I would heard, like you said, on the snapshot that authentic media put out about the, what they call it, not the pit stops, but you know, the way they're bringing now the fuel out of the deck instead of pulling hoses over that you can't drive over in your airplane. So sounds like they've really improved everything. And I'm still kind of reeling from your discussion with OJ about PLM. And I've talked to Grant and a few others that are were flying it and it sounds to me like that is something that just makes flying the ball so much easier, and now the boat operations are so much different I don't know fly under the lo- further further removed I am from my career, the less and less it seems relevant to what I did and what it
2: <laughs> is like now, yeah, and it would be really fun to go out and see that operation you know and and the thing that I took away from that too was just that it sounds like there weren't just engineers sitting there designing the ship, it was like, hey, let's bring in the ABFs and let's bring in the ABHs and let's bring in the pilots and let's bring in the V division officers and all these people to say, what can we do to make this better? And it really sounds like something that they did well and they came out with a really great product.
0: Hey, am I dreaming this by the way, or do you remember I want to say it was one of our first JO cruises because I think you and I were on the same ones. Didn't somebody come out and interview a bunch of people like, hey, we're going to build this whole new class of carrier and what do you like and what do you don't like? I seem to remember that, but I could have made it up.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it very well could have happened. I don't know if it would have been, would it have been in the 90s? But absolutely, it seems like it happened on more than one occasion to try to get enough inputs to really come up with a design like they did but yeah it's quite reasonable it doesn't hit my memory though but there's quite a few things that are gone
0: (laughs) yeah well (laughs) it's harder every year for me but man i was impressed to hear though that every officer's stateroom has a sink which we all had before but a toilet and a shower that's impressive i hope they can make plenty of water because it's going to be a little harder to walk around and holler at people for not taking navy showers
2: yeah, that's right. Well, maybe they have some kind of automated systems, almost like we had on Kennedy with the little hockey puck things. <laughs> you only got a limited amount of water anyway, but there were always jail workarounds for that. But yeah, I was kind of taken aback by that because I just thought about, well, that's just like extra plumbing to go to every state room, And I just think about the back end of that, the maintenance side of that to maintain all those things instead of having all that in one space. So I thought that was an interesting design decision to do that.
0: And I'd like to, as you kind of intimated a moment ago, I'd like to walk around the Ford a little bit because right below the flight deck was usually all this ready rooms. And so if that's where the bomb area is now, I guess the ready rooms must be a little bit lower. But yeah, it might be just a really interesting eye-opening experience to go walk around on the Ford and, and see how different it is compared to what you and I did for 20 plus years.
2: The thing I, I liked about, you know, throughout our career is you could generally, I mean, I had a couple of deployments on Kennedy, so that was a, a curveball, but, and I had Enterprise. My point is that you get on any Nimitz carrier and it's just like, you know where to go. And now with Ford, that's changed. And so as you go from one carrier to another one. You're going to have to figure things out because like I like said, he and I didn't get into where are the ready rooms and that kind of stuff, but it would be fun to check it out.
0: Now, before we listened to the interview just now, you had talked about you also were aware like uh, Yank wasn't some of the negative press around the Ford. And, you know, I just can't help but wonder and maybe I'm a little bit cynical now, but. I think this is just the world we live in, because if something's going well, well, nobody wants to report on that, right? They've got to find the salacious, the sleazy, the whatever to report on so you can get people all fired up, right? And especially taxpayers, oh, you know, government's wasting your money. So I don't know. I'm not saying it's fabricated, but I just feel like we need to all brace ourselves for in any new project or platform or whatever, we're going to hear about and everybody's going to get fired up about whatever the little problem is, even if it's, as Yank mentioned it, a couple of years old or if it's solved or whatever. I don't know. It was that way with the F-35 and now they seem to be over it and they seem to be over it on the Ford as well. But I don't know. I just think we need to accept that that's just the world we're in.
2: Yeah, I agree with you. And I started seeing a little more of that when I was in the test evaluation community and Super Hornet was fielding and, and it was just... You know, there was a little bit not to the extent of we saw with Ford, but it was just that, okay, kind of this is all we got, you know, because it was in its infancy. It was a slightly bigger version of a Legacy Hornet. But now you look at the Super Hornet and it's that thing of, okay, we're going to initially feel this thing and it's not going to be the ultimate end result. We're going to continue developing this thing, but we just got to get things out there. And I think that we've seen that all along. The one thing that sticks out in my mind is the A-12 program that I think I was in high school and coming into the Navy when the A-12 program was shut down. So it's, the scrutiny is going to be there. We have to understand that. Interestingly, you know, there's a lot of the congressional scrutiny. We're giving you all this money. What are we getting out of it? And all those checks and balances are there to make sure that we don't end up with a program that really isn't serving its needs. So it is something we have to endure along with the media cycle that goes with it and the social media stuff where things, the only things that gain traction, like you said, are the things that are kind of salacious. So we have to deal with it. And then you get somebody like Yank who comes in and makes that part of his thing of, okay, I got it. We've tried to take some big leaps with technology in some big places. There have been stumbles along the way, but let's talk about all the good things. And so I think he did a really phenomenal job of that.
0: Well, and I think Somehow it's almost like we don't accept stumbles anymore. I mean, since when, right? Does it have to be perfect all along? Look at the F-16. I mean, arguably now the most prolific fighter ever. And it was derided as a lawn dart and everything else when it was, I mean, there's always going to be hiccups and hurdles along the way. And we just seem as a society, at least my view of it through social media, so intolerant of that. Oh, look, you know, it's has this problem. What a waste of money or, oh, but to your point. Hopefully, and this could be blind trust or naivete on my part, but hopefully there are still smart people in the right positions so that if something does get sufficiently far out of whack, like the A12, that the hard decision is made. Hey, you know what? Yep, we wasted money on this. And who knows? Some of that could have led to other developments or whatever, but it's either going to end or no, hush up everyone. We're going to work through all that and it's still going to proceed, which is in the case of the F-35 and the Ford, what happened? So. Yeah, I don't know. I just think we're, uh, right? (laughs) Attention and and hysteria are sort of a new currency. So in order to get that, they've got to focus on the negative.
2: Yeah, absolutely right. It's a a fact of life.
0: So I'm surprised Yank and I, or at least I don't feel like I know him. I don't know if he knows me. I'm sure our paths must have crossed somewhere. But at any rate, I do take some slight issue with his idea of the specialization that you asked him about. And I'll tell you this, from personal experience, uh, Flounder. When I left Top Gun, arguably as tactical as I would ever be, my training officer tour was with VFA 97 on Nimitz in 2003. And Flounder, we were still flying FA 18As. And so w- when I would try to rock right on the weapon select switch, I'd hurt my thumb because there was no AMRAM on the FA 18A. And so in 2003, of course, there wasn't much of an air threat, but still when we were going over because we were sort of beating up Afghanistan for a little while, and then now we were going to go into Iraq, it was very clear in Air Wing 11 that VFA 97 would not be doing combat air patrol. We were not going to be leading the air to air. And I, as a top gun instructor, accepted that. We focused on harm because we could shoot that from the A. We focused on LGB's bombing, close air support, everything else. And we did air-to-air training as much as we could with Sparrow, but we just knew that that wasn't the case. And so I guess the argument I'm trying to get to here, if you're still awake, is I don't necessarily think specialization is a bad idea. I think people can go from squadron to squadron, and I think a squadron should have a degree of proficiency in everything. But I do think it would be okay to take VFA one, two, three, and 4 and say, hey, 1 and 3, you guys are going to be particularly good at this. 2, you're going to be good at that. And 4, you're going to be good at this because, oh, by the way, we already did that anyway with FAC A, only the F squadron is going to do that. So I don't know. I still think there's a discussion for this and you don't have to necessarily agree with me or not, but uh, that's just my two cents from an eight month deployment flying F-18As.
2: I certainly think it's plausible, and I'll be interested to see as we get into you know, something like an air wing of F-35s, F-18s, and MQ-25s. And growlers. Yeah, and, and growlers, of course, totally specialized and very necessary. But with those from the kind of strike fighter, and, and the reason I bring MQ-25 in is for the air refueling part, so it frees up more of your Super Hornets, and so therefore... At some point, are we going to do, you know, it's one of those things back to, are we afraid to fail? Can we try it out? Can we pick an air wing and say, hey, let's try this out? Let's, you F-35 squadron, you're going to be specialized in this. You guys are going to be specialized in this. Over here is an F-18 E squadron. We got an F-18 F squadron. You're going to be specialized here and see what kind of results we get. I think it would be an interesting experiment. And I feel like it's one that we would not lose a lot by going through that.
0: And even if I were in a squadron that was air to ground specialized or something within a subset of that as a training officer, and then, which is, oh, by the way, what happened to me at VFA 97, then I went to VFA 94, which was a lot 12 C squadron. And let's say that squadron was more air to air focused. Well, okay. What do I need to know? Right? We have the SFWT. Maybe I go do so many simulators, so many flights, I'm checked off, signed off, whatever, and right back where I was. So, yeah, I think it's a possibility. You oh, know, by the way, we we did exactly this in VFA 86. I don't know if you remember this. Um, we launched on the 99 cruise a Slam ER, and we only had a couple crews in VFA 86 who were the Slam ER specialists. The rest of us sort of knew about it, but didn't do it. So I didn't get to fire it, but uh, Chunk Smith, I think, was part of one of those shots.
2: Yeah, because that's honestly kind of the next place I was going to go with it is we already no matter if you're specializing in something, I don't think that the Navy would go all the way down the road of, and we're going to take all your training and readiness for air to air away because you're air to ground. Cause obviously we're still a multi-role platform and we see that, you know, we had on my last deployment, we had a Maverick SMEs and then we went into a contingency op where we needed to shoot some Mavericks. And so they got everybody up to speed enough to be capable enough. And we went out and deployed and, it all worked great. And so it's, you're still going to have those people who you're the harm guy. You're the maverick pilot wizard, whatever. And so we're still going to have that because there is a lot to know when you step in that cockpit.
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, and then finally, when it came to the call sign story, I have to admit flounder with the last name Cummings, I was expecting a bit more of a colorful story, but Yankee, Yankee. All right. I'll go with that, but.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And I, you know, haven't been around him a lot. I knew it was from his uh, New England. Background, I didn't know the exact details of it, but he sure did get away with, with one, with that last <laughs> name. <laughs> awesome.
0: All right. And then it sounds like he's doing some good work out there, taking all his Navy experiences and uh, hopefully applying those to business opportunities and speaking and all that. Do you remember his website again? You want to?
2: Yeah, sure. JJCummingsLeadership.com. So it's really great. I'm so glad to hear he's he's getting speaking engagements and because he's got some great experience and perspective that he can help people out in their, their own organizational leadership. So really good uh, for people to go check it out.
0: For sure. Well, thanks again, Flounder, for getting that interview. And I hope someday, Yank, if you're out there listening, get a chance to meet, probably hook next year or whatever. But uh, Flounder, before we let you go, what else are you working on?
2: You know, it's it, it's great. The, the work is good it allows me the freedom to be able to do the things that i really really enjoy my boys being young they're fourth and sixth grade so we're in the middle of tackle football season right now and i'm the vp for the youth football organization and we got lacrosse coming up and and they both played one year last year and so i'm helping out with the lacrosse organization as we try to expand those things so it's really this time ever since i retired we're being able to be more involved in these activities and these organizations. And I see tremendous value in these communities of these youth athletic organizations. So that's really what, where I I get a lot of gratification, those, and we're building up our local scouts organizations, COVID crushed everybody. And so really building up numbers, bringing more kids in the scouting program. So it's, it's just been a lot of fun. Well, you have any future guests lined up for the fighter pilot podcast? I've got some, Tailhook was great to be able to talk to some folks, but uh, working through, I I think I'm going to do a little bit of what you've been doing, capturing the stories of people who, you know, are Vietnam era and stuff like that. So, you know, my dad was an F-4 pilot in Vietnam and he's got, you know, some friends who were my Navy uncles who love to just spend some time with and kind of capture their stories. And a few of them are, kind of legends in their F-14 and A-6 communities. So it'd be really fun to get those going.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, turn on a tape recorder and get what you can. And yeah, this is good. I mean, right, we're passing through these generations. The Korean War veterans are gonna be probably gone before too long. They must be pushing 90-ish. And so we gotta we gotta capture these while we can, but we're also having a good time here on the show, just getting discussion going like we did today on the Ford and Top Gun Maverick. And we've got an episode coming up on LSOs and how the magic carpet or PLM changes that. Golly, we've got one coming up on Top Gun Adversaries and we're still having a good time here, and Flounder, I'm still glad to count you as a wingman because it's hard to do all these on my own, and you seem to have a skill for it and a propensity for it, so I appreciate you throwing your hat in the ring.
2: Yeah, well, I'm happy to continue doing it, and so I'm going to try to crank out some more, and uh, it, like I said before, it's just great to stay connected in this great community. Thanks for the opportunity, Joe. Well,
0: you're welcome, Flounder, and thank you to all who listened up to this point. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Fighter Pilot Podcast. And we'll see you next time. So long.
2: You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet show that explores the fascinating world of air combat. Visit our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com, for a blog, a glossary of the terms used on this show, and a shop page featuring unique military aviation-themed books and apparel. Check out our YouTube channel to watch hundreds of military aviation-themed videos. And for exclusive content, head on over to our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. 好